Our culture is in a total identity crisis, really like an identity crisis meltdown. Uh, that's true. Just if you look at us as a whole society these days, um, I think that kind of meltdown explains why there is the political parties are so divided uh, with less and less common ground between them. Uh, they really, each of them, portray two different Americas, two different histories, two contrarian visions for the country. In a way, you can say as a society, we look at ourselves and we say, we're not sure who we are anymore. But that crisis only mirrors the meltdown of so many individuals in our society as well, where formerly the most basic fundamental things about us that we took for granted, you know, like two years ago, uh, are now thrown out all in the open, whether it's marriage or who we are and what we are born to be. Uh, we're not sure who we are anymore. And as a Christian, though, we're not immune from this kind of trouble. If you interview a bunch of Christians, I know Ligonier Ministries has done this, uh, those who claim the name of Christ, and you ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? Or, or how should a Christian live? What are we to believe? Uh, what are we here to do? Uh, there's more and more confusion. There's more and more division. There's less of a settled sense on what the actual calling of God is for us. And I think even in our Bible-believing, evangelical culture, this is perhaps somewhat skewed by how we think about evangelism, even. You know, perhaps some of the problem stems from our very own gospel presentations that are so focused, if you could almost say it this way, merely on telling people how to get to heaven. By the way, this is a really good thing to do, <laughs> is to speak about Christ. We'll talk more about that. And tell them how they can go live with God forever and not be judged, yes. But I think even in our gospel presentations, we make this seem like that's the summation of the Christian life. It's really all about getting out of hell, just getting to heaven one day. Whew, isn't the gospel good news? But the thing is, you become a Christian, and then you realize, well, when I became a Christian, I didn't go right to heaven. Uh, God left me here. I'm still here. What is this about? Why doesn't God just take us home? Well, that's where we must turn to His Word. For the Scripture informs and shapes us, tells we who we are as the people of God. That yes, in Christ, God saves us, but He saves us on purpose, for a purpose. He saved us to give us a directive and a mission. And so we got to define who we are, how we think, how we live in our daily lives by this purpose set forth in the Word of God. And so what does it mean, the question is, what does it mean to be the people of God? And for that answer, we're turning this morning to Exodus 19. And as we uncover that answer, here's the so what of what we're talking about today. You need to shape your thinking, the way you think about yourself, First of all, because how you think about God. You need to say, you shape your thinking about how you think about life, how you think about what I'm going to do tomorrow, what I'm going to do this afternoon. You need to shape and conform your thinking, your whole life, to these four defining attributes about God's people. If you're God's, then these four attributes need to characterize you. What we find in these four attributes that follow about God's people, this is what God means you to be in Christ. This is who God meant you to be, we'd say. It's defined by these four things. These four things need to characterize how we think about every moment of our life. 
And in the first place, what do we find? We find that we are a promised people, which the implication for us is in verses 1 and 2, you need to see that he's a God who makes promises and he keeps them mercifully to you. See how he's been faithful to you. Verses 1 and 2. This is the first attribute or qualification that defines God's people, that you're actually part of a promised people. God has given us his word, and we can't lose sight of his faithfulness to keep it. Now, God's faithfulness to his people here, as we turn to Exodus 19, just shows itself right away as God's people arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they've come there to meet God and worship him. So look at verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the day they came, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So if we're talking third new moon, we're talking about it's been three months. It's been three months since they crossed the Red Sea. It's been three months since we've seen the plagues that came upon the Egyptians. It's been three months since they've been driven out of Egypt by God, and that also means not only was that three months ago, but for the last three months then, God's been sustaining them and providing for them every bit of the way, every, bit of the way, every day, providing manna, providing their food, providing miraculously at times water to be given in this desert wilderness. God's been faithful. You know, when Israel first came into Egypt, right, they came with the patriarch Joseph And they waited a long, long time for these promises that he gave in Genesis 15 to come to pass, that they would actually come out after 400 years. Well, after the long wait, God had not forgotten his word. He's delivering on his word, and he's doing it over and over and day by day as he continues to faithfully provide. And this horde of two million Jews tramping through a desert still alive is living proof of that. God's been faithful. But and that's key in this text, God has not been merely faithful to this nation as a whole, but He's been particularly faithful to Moses. He's made specific promises to Moses, and with their arrival at Mount Sinai, they're being kept. I'm not sure you remember, but when the Lord first met Moses at the burning bush, which is not very far from where they are here at Mount Sinai, Remember, God or Moses was shepherding uh, Jethro's flock, and he came upon this burning bush, and God met him there. This is holy ground. And God was giving Moses a mission. And part of that mission was he was going to go and deliver the people of God. But as Moses was perhaps hesitant to do so, God gave Moses a reassurance. Here's going to be a sign. Here's a proof that you can know that I'm in this, that I'm with you, that I'm behind you in this, Moses. Here was a sign to reassure him that God was really for him in this. And here was the word. This is from Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. God told Moses this. He said, I will be with you, Moses, and this will be the sign for you that I've sent you. So here's the confirmation. Here's the reassurance that I'm with you, that I'm in this, that, I'm, that this is my plan. Well, what is it? He said, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So that's an interesting reassurance. It's kind of a reassurance and a promise all mixed into one. He says, because this is Exodus 3, well before they ever show up at Sinai as a nation, but he's telling him, Moses, when you see that happen, when you're at Mount Sinai again and you worship God there, that is proof without a doubt 
that I am in this with you. Because there's no explanation otherwise. I mean, again, if you go, go back to that time at the burning bush, let alone that was sensational. But God's talking to him and says, I'm going to deliver all of your people out of slavery from the most powerful nation. I'm going to wander them in a wilderness, and I'm going to bring them to this mountain. Moses would say, yeah, that sounds great, but that is crazy. I can't even fathom how that's going to happen. Well, God's telling him, well, when it does, know that I'm with you in this. That's the abiding proof of that. And sure enough, as we look to verse 2 of Exodus 19, the fulfillment of that sign is here. They set out from Rephidim, and they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. Note this, there Israel encamped before the mountain. God's word stands confirmed. God really sent Moses. God's really with Moses. He's really for you, Moses. He's been faithful even just to you in bringing God's people here. And surely Moses must never forget this. That is, God was setting this up as a sign, as a rock in his life that he could always look back on and say, oh yes, God's been faithful. I've seen it. Oh yes, God, you've kept your word. I've seen it. I couldn't see it then, but now I do. But why did God set up the sign like this? Why is Moses going to need this sign, this abiding confirmation, this proof that he was, that God was with him? Well, I think you can guess it's because things are going to get really hard. You're going to have ample reason to doubt, God, are you really in this and for me in this? And even as they came out of the Red Sea, right, they were already running into problems. And God delivered through those. And they're going to run into many more after Exodus 19.20 and the giving of the law. This was just the beginning, Moses, of the troubles to come. And to stay you with me in those troubles is this reminder, this sign, I've been with you, I've been faithful, and so you can know I will be. See, we need these kind of abiding, past confirmations of God's faithfulness to reassure us. To reassure us that, no, this might look crazy, I don't know what's going on, but I know with this God, I'm on the right track. Have you ever been invited someplace, say to someone's house for the first time, and, and it's, a bit of, it's, it's a bit of out there location-wise, you know, it's way out in the country, like far off Cumberland? They build a nice house out there, of course, and you've seen pictures on Facebook. You're like, oh, this is cool. I can't wait till it's done. And it's done, and they send you this really neat email that's for the open house. You're like, oh, great. I want to go see this and rejoice with them in their new place. And so you're driving out on the interstate, and then you turn off on one of those roads, and you start driving, and you're like, there's no way they build a house out here. Things start looking a little sketch, Okay. You're not on pavement anymore. You, you lost the gravel some time ago. It's dirt. There's a washed-out creek you went through. And then you turn down another lane because Google told you to, and you're like, this is bad. And you're driving through. It's not even trailer park. There's just an old trailer, like, sitting there. Other cars, no wheels, all over the front yard. And you're going right through their front yard. That had happened at this church, by the way. No comment. 
But what happens? You're like, this cannot be the right way to go. So you keep checking your GPS. You keep checking the invitation. I must have got the county wrong. They must have met Powhatan. This is not where I need to be. You're thinking, am I going to the right place? Am I lost? Nope, the address looks right. You're also thinking, are they going to shoot us out here? No, the address looks right. Until you come around the next clearing and you see your friend on the front porch and they're waving you in. But if you didn't have that address, that invitation to keep looking at to remind you, no, I'm on the right track, you would have turned back. And that's how these reassurances of God's past faithfulness work in our Christian life. They are deeds, evidences, God's been faithful. I've seen it in the past. And I know he'll be faithful as he has been. These deeds of past faithfulness, even as we walk into a trial or difficulty, they reassure us, no, we're on the right track. Or better said, I know he's with me. He's put me on the right track. I know he's been faithful, even with how challenging this looks. And I know he will be, because he doesn't change. But, oh, do you see then how we rob our faith and our courage for tomorrow by so looking nonchalantly past of as many ways that he's delivered and provided in today? When we just take them for granted, we look past as many graces every day that we get far better than we deserve. We put those things out of our mind, we forget, we discount them, we ignore them, we look past them. And so then when we do walk into a trial, we can't remember that God's faithful. We start thinking, man, if this is going on, life's out of control. God, where are you? When there's this been road of faithful workings of God, even in your very life, let alone the cross. So, brothers and sisters, look and find all of those many ways God has been faithful in your life. Chronicle those. Write those down. Remember those. Keep keep them in your pocket, those marks of His faithfulness at hand, so that when you walk into that next door that's a trial or test, you can be sure, oh yeah, I can already see it. This is going to be hard, but I know He's with me. I know He's faithful. I know he's for me in Christ. He's made promises to me. He hasn't failed me yet, and he's not going to start today. Like as Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. His faithfulness is our surety for tomorrow and maybe even for today, depending what you're walking in. Never forget, we are a promised people. Furthermore, we are a redeemed people. And so the call for us is, you got to first remember how He has saved, past tense in that way, you, if you're in Christ. Verses 3 and 4. We are not merely defined by God's promises as something out there. We are defined as God's people by God fulfilling His promises and actually saving us. We are defined by this truth. He has already redeemed us. And so we must never forget this, especially before we can ever start thinking about, well, how are we to obey Him, which that's going to come as the law comes next and then following chapters. But so you see it. Israel's come to meet God. They've been come to the the mountain here. And Moses goes up to be their messenger, their intermediary. 
And right when he gets there, God says, Moses, go right back down and give God's people a message. I've got something I want to tell them. So look at verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. And as we come to the end of the message, at the end of verse 6, the last sentence there, it sums up, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is a sandwich of God's word to his people. The first thing that happens, Moses goes up the mountain, God's going to give his word to his people. And what is the first thing God wants to tell his people? What's the first thing he wants to bring to their mind? I saved you. That's what must be on the forefront of their mind is to think about who they are and who their God is. I saved you. What does he want them to know? They have been gloriously delivered. Look at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And you see the salvation described in these three facets and Each one parallels how God has saved us in Christ, if you look to him. In the first place, the Lord has conquered Israel's enemies, namely those enslaving Egyptians. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And the text is emphatic. You see it there. You yourselves have seen. The the Israelites, indeed, they're, they're firsthand eyewitnesses, aren't they? They've seen these plagues play out, take place. They walked themselves on the dry ground in the midst of the Red Sea. They've been eyewitnesses of the power of God to deliver them, and their enemies have been crushed. And in Christ, we too now taste the victory of our conquering King, the Lord Jesus, as He has slain our greatest and most terrifying enemies. We hear this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 through 57. O oh, death! Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Well, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And to to that, we must say amen. For our Jesus is a conquering king. But you can hear it in those words. Jesus has gone to war for us over our sins at the cross. And he won. He defeated our greatest enemies, the power of sin and death. And he conquered. Such that if you are in Christ this morning, death has no claim over you. Christ will bring you up from the dead. And even now, you enjoy the fruit of that life, of that victory. Because now, Satan, he's no longer your master. You're no longer under his power. And when I know we know those temptations and how strong they are within and how enslaving they can feel, but in Christ, the chains have been broken. How do I know this? Because Christ is alive. That's how I know this. I don't know it because of the feeling in my heart. I know it because Jesus has risen in heaven interceding for me. I know it because of the promises of his word that he's fulfilled. I know it because he's given his people his spirit to change us. So, brothers and sisters, this morning, don't mess with sin. Its power is broken in your life. 
Live in that power of your conquering king, dear Christian. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, Paul tells us. Why? Because of the power of the cross and the authority of Christ. He's conquered our enemies. There's another side to this deliverance picture. In this sweeping rescue of danger, that is, it gives this picture of we are in mortal danger and God comes like an eagle and snatches us away. Puts it in this phrase, I bore you on eagle's wings. The Lord saw us in our trouble. He swoops in and he picks us up and carries us away to safety where the evil enemies can no longer harm us or touch us. What this highlights is that the saving work of God, it's all God. It's all His. Even notice here in verse 4 how God is the subject of all of these deliverances. You've seen what I did, God says to the Egyptians. You've seen how I bore you on eagles' wings. And you've seen how, and the Hebrew would have this, I brought you out to myself. This is the work of God, pictured with this coming and deliverance, like taking us on eagles' wings. Salvation is not you and God getting together and conquering your enemies. Salvation is God saves you because you were dead in your sins. It's not a cooperation between you and God that you can take partial glory for it, even if He did most of the work. No, what do we say? We are saved by grace through faith alone. No work of our own. That's pictured here by being carried away on these eagle's wings. But furthermore, this salvation picture is a picture of reconciliation. Because back to verse 4, did you notice where God says He takes His people? He snatches them up, carries them on eagle's wings, and where does He take them? But to be with Him. He says, I brought you to Myself. He saved them to bring them close so they would know God like no other people on the earth. This is, if you think about it really, what we've done to our Creator and then what the gospel preaches. This is the extraordinary, mind-boggling thing that makes the good news of the gospel so great, so good, so glorious. And it's not that you merely get spared hell. It's not that you get to live for an eternity. That's not really the good news of the gospel. You know what the good news of the gospel is. You get God. He gives Himself to you. He proclaims in heaven, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. The Creator you spurned, you threw your fist up at, and you said, I don't want anything to do with you. He comes, and He delivers, and He rescues, and He gives you Himself to be with Him. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, why? Because we ran far away. You've been brought near, full access, but by the blood of Christ. Peace with God, life with God, able to approach God. That's astonishing. The very gift of the Almighty Himself, secured by the work of God. That is good news, friends, this morning. 
But I want to ask a question then. Why does God start there? Why does he start with this good news? You know what's going to happen in a few chapters, right? We're going to get a whole lot of laws, whole load of them, command after command, a whole lot of do's and don'ts. But before he's telling Israel, before you can ever think about obedience, before you can ever think about trying to do right and wrong before me, you need to think about this. Salvation comes first. Rescue by grace comes first. And then we can start thinking about how you might live for God. And we can't forget this. We can't get the order mixed up because then we turn the gospel on its head. Understand, it's salvation first, and then we can talk about obedience. It's not the other way around. It's not we obey so that God might save us. No, it's that He saves us while we were dead, and then we can talk about why we should obey Him. But it's so easy to get that confused, I think. I think many of us have assumptions about the Christian gospel, That's wrong. We think we need to measure up to make God love us, and that's how we get to heaven. Like I see these other obedient Christians, so-called. Or even as you understand the gospel, that you were lost and He had to totally save you, it's so easy still to get confused as you journey on the Christian life. You become more acutely aware of all of your failings, even as a Christian, and you start to think things like, how can He still be pleased with me when I've done this? Or when I neglected to do that, is He really for me? And so in response, we say, well, I better obey more. I better try harder. I got to win myself back into His good graces, the irony of that term, right? We got to earn back His love. We become then the boy that's in the film Searching for Bobby Fischer. Uh, It's a story about an eight-year-old child chess prodigy and his sudden meteoric rise into the chess rankings in the United States. It's based on a true story. Uh, The boy taught himself chess by watching men play in the park, and as he then started to play, he had a gift, and he was winning tournament after tournament after tournament. And the story really, yeah, it's about chess, but it's really about a father and a son. And as this sports writer father who loves sports, loves competition. He loves seeing his son excel. And it's his son's winning tournament after tournament. His father's just obviously so proud of him. But then Josh, the boy, starts losing. He's ranked number one, but then he starts losing to guys he has no business losing to. And his dad thinks, oh, it's all psychological. He's in a slump, is what he says. Uh, his son's losing because now he's, he's afraid he's going to lose, and so then he thinks he will, and he, so he loses. He loses the game. But his mom knows better. And mom tells the dad at a key point in the story, Josh isn't afraid of losing the game. He's afraid of losing your love. Then she says, asks, how many ballplayers grow up afraid of losing their father's love every time they come to the plate. And then the dad reveals something because he then yells, all of them. But if you think your heavenly father's love depends on how well you keep performing, on how well you keep obeying, how well you keep winning, how good you can be, the weight of that's going to crush you. 
That's no gospel at all. So understand, when the Lord, he's about to give them a whole lot of laws, a whole lot of commands to do. But the first thing he tells them is, I already saved you. I already delivered you. I already did all the work. You're already mine. You're my son, aren't you? And nothing can change that if you're in Christ. Because why? We have a God who will never leave us or forsake us. Why? Because Christ was already forsaken for us. And get this, that's why we obey. Not because we're scared of losing his love. Not because we need to earn his love and his favor. We obey, as it says in 1 John, or we love. Why? Because he first loved us. Even when we were unlovely. And that won't change when we have a Savior like Jesus Christ. Because we are then a redeemed people. That must define us. But we mentioned obedience, and this ties to the third aspect of God's people. We are an obligated people. We are called to obey. And we see that in the first part of verse 5. Back to Exodus 19. That is, after laying all the groundwork, He first saves us. It's His work. Now, though, we can talk about how we're supposed to live. And we're supposed to live a life of obedience. So he says in verse 5, Now, therefore, if you will indeed, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. That's a good capture of what the Hebrew text is getting at. But more literally, you can translate it like this. Indeed, if you will carefully listen to my voice. And keep my covenant. But to be clear, the point is not, and that's why the ESV translators rendered it this way, the point is not merely hearing the Word of God. They understand this. It's to hear, but then have it do something. Namely, change you. Move your life to be different. The point of hearing God's instruction is not merely to just hear it, but to put it in practice, right? There's a notion out there that Jesus can be your Savior, and then when you get really mature in the Christian life, He becomes your Lord. You know, you really follow Him. Well, that's a false dichotomy. You can't split up Jesus that way. Go read the ending of the Sermon on the Mount when He talks about the wise builders. Both builders hear the Word of God, but the wise builder hears it and does it. You can't divide Jesus up as Lord or Savior. He has to be both together. You either trust Jesus or you don't. You obey Jesus or you don't. See, if you actually believe the promises of Jesus that He can save you, then you're going to believe His good commands that He gives to you to actually do them. Now, this doesn't mean, this does not mean the true Christian will never sin again or we obey Jesus perfectly. Go read the ending of 1 John chapter 1. That's not how this works. But to mention perfection, it's not about the perfection of your life. It's about the direction. Are you really turned towards Christ or did you just say something hoping you get out of hell, but then you can live your life your own way? That is not real faith. You've not been changed. You've not turned direction. You've just dressed up your rebellion in Christian garb. Have you been changed? 
Has Jesus changed you if you say you believe in him? Another way to say it, is your faith real? Do you hear God's word not to just have it pass into your ear and then say, oh, I did my duty of hearing a good sermon this morning, or I listened to that podcast about Jesus' word, and then I know I'm a good Christian, or I read my Bible every day and I tick the box. That's not the question. It is, do you hear God's word to be changed by it? Do you trust the God who speaks his word? That's faith. Now, some fear that when I start talking like this, oh no, Rick, you got to be careful. You're bringing us back to the law. You're bringing us back to guilt. You're bringing us back to earning our salvation all over again. No, no, I'm not. I'm trying to show you what the Bible actually says faith looks like. It looks like turning from your sin. It looks like change. It looks like obedience. And the point is here, to relate it back to verse 4, it's obedience that is a grateful response. It's a, it's a grateful trusting in a salvation that's already been given by God. In our frame of reference, already been accomplished by Christ. That is, we've seen the goodness of the good news. We've seen the goodness of God and what He's given us in the gospel that we're obligated to obey Him. We have to. Now, there's two senses to obligation. Understand that. One is not so healthy, and the other, I think, is what God intends here. The not so healthy version, maybe you know this one, it's where you're, you're compelled to do that thing you don't really want to do, but you kind of know you should do it. So you're compelled to do it. Uh, you can imagine as a teenager, maybe, if you're not a teen right now, uh, you're it's when you were a teen, and then your grandmother gave you a great big check on your birthday, so she really loves you, and you were so glad to get the check, uh, but then she also asked for you to come over and sit at her house to hear story after story again, and your best friend Tommy invited you over that same afternoon, and so you know what you want to do. You want to go to Tommy's house and maybe spend the check on whatever you guys are going to do, but you feel so guilty that she was so generous to you, and you even, didn't, you even forgot to write a thank you that, okay, I'll go to grandma's because I know it's the right thing to do. Contrast that kind of compulsion with this kind. He got a new husband, and he commands his wife, gives her a command in this day and age. Wow. He commands his wife, pack your bags for a two-night stay at the beach. I doubt most wives would find that a hard command to obey. Why? Because one, you love the one who gave you the command and he loves you. And two, you trust him. You can already see that this is a command for your good. Don't you know that God's commands are good? That he gives us? That he's kindly directing us? That's even true about the Old Testament law that we're about to dive into, Lord willing, in the coming months as we keep working through Exodus. But listen to what God says about His law as He summarizes it in Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13. kind of gives a summary of the law as He begins, and He says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require 
compel you to do, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, note this, which I'm commanding you today, but he adds, for your good. And I dare say, if that was true about the Old Testament law, is not at all the more true that in the New Testament, in view of God's love for us, that his commands are for our good. What command would that Savior who would give his life give you that isn't for your good? And again, that's where faith comes in, doesn't it? That remembers, okay, or it goes through the confrontation, right? My heart doesn't want to do this, or I really want to do this, and I know Jesus doesn't want me to, but I can trust him. I know he loves me. I know he's with me. He gave himself for me. And so will you trust him? And that means, will you then obey him in that? That's what it means to be an obligated in the right way people. But we're also finally a commissioned people. He's given us a role, a place in his great plan in this world, and he's calling us to fulfill it. And we see that in the second half of verses 5 into verse 6. This is why he saved us. We're saved on purpose, but not just to go straight to heaven. He's got a mission for us here and now. So verse 5 starts with the if. If they will intently listen or obey, then what's to happen? What's the other side of this? Well, that's where we find out in verses 5 and 6. And God's people will be three things. There are three things listed here. If and to the degree we will obey His commands. And in the first place, He says, They will be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the world. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. It's one word in the Hebrew rendered by that expression, treasured possession. It refers to a king's gold or silver that he has won or accumulated probably in the battlefield. It's something he's now prized. It's his, it's his loot, and he's won it. And by his relationship with Israel, God's saying, you are my treasured possession. You're the apple of the eye that I've bought. But clearly we see this is not a treasure that's put up in a case in the dining room to be looked at behind glass. This is not a treasure that's stored in a bank vault just to be kept safe. It's a treasure to be won out of the world and then to be mobilized into it. For the Lord adds, you shall be my treasure possession among, that is in a way, out of all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. All the earth is his, but he's called this nation out. Because we'll see, because he's mobilizing them back into it as the people of God. And we see that explained. What does it mean that there is treasure possession? Well, that's uncovered by these next two descriptors that God uses about his people. What does it mean there are treasure possession? Now we look to verse 6. It means, and you shall be to me first here, a kingdom of priests. And what does this mean? It means that they are one, they're a kingdom, that they are under the lordship of God, and that is mediated by His Word. That's how God reigns among His people. But furthermore, they're a kingdom of priests. And they're not just a kingdom that has some priests in it. More than this, the expression in the Hebrew would mean that they are all priests. 
which what does it mean to be a priest? It means you have access to God, and that means you can mediate, that is, extend God's presence in this world. And they can do that as a nation. That they will serve as really, in that way, the priest to the world. How the world will know and encounter God is through this people, Israel. But they will only do that if they will obey Him and so represent Him. Which is even captured by that final phrase in verse 6, they will be to me first a kingdom of priests, but then also a holy nation. You know, as you go through the law, as God gives a lot of this people, He says over and over again, I am the Lord. He gives a command and says, I am the Lord. Furthermore, He'll tell them, be holy, be set apart, be righteous. And then He says, for I am holy, God says. They're going to imitate God. Israel's a nation that are going to demonstrate His character and His order out to the world. Because they are His, they are going to represent God. That's a high calling. And as we know, the story of Israel doesn't play out so good. Well, Rick, this is great. I'm glad we learned these things about Israel's mission. Uh, but this is an exodus. This isn't about us, really. So what are we supposed to do with this? Yeah, it's true in a way that this is about Israel. But then it's rather interesting for the very Jewish apostle Peter gives this word to the church, to Christians, those who had no place inside the Jewish people of God. But he says this, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he writes, and see what sounds familiar to you. But you, that is to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? That's right what's in here in Exodus 19. And now those truths about the nation of Israel are being taken and put on a whole bunch of non-Jews, a whole bunch of Gentiles who have trusted in Christ such that we have become the priest of God to the world. Not that we can take care of our sins. Christ has done that. But we go with the message of God telling Him where that can happen, to trust Him. In other words, what are we supposed to do as we are priests in a holy spiritual kingdom for God? Verse 9 finishes it off. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We get to tell the world about how excellent our God is. How excellent is He? He goes on to explain. Because particularly about us Gentiles, that is many of us here, have no Jewish descent. And yet this can be said, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people. You were not part of that treasured possession. You were outside in that way the plan of God. But now you are God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, he says, but now you have received mercy. That is, you're right, those words in Exodus 19 were given first to Israel, and we were outside of that, pagan rebels, idol worshipers dead in our sins, running from God, but why now would we be included as God's people? Is it because, well, Israel's so wicked, and then God said, you won't be. No, that's not it. 
Is it because I'll be more holy and righteous than Israel ever was because I'm better than them? No, not beyond God's power and help. Is it because God just loves me more because I'll be a better worshiper than they were? No. So how can we have this privileged status? There is one reason and one reason alone. And we will sing the praise of it in heaven for an eternity. And we have a picture of it in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song. So here's this window into the song of heaven. Worthy are you to take the scrolls and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed, bought back a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them, note this, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. There is one reason and only one reason why you could ever be His. It's because Jesus died and ransomed you, buying you back to God. And until we join that song in heaven, praising our Jesus, our lives are to ever be on earth for Him. Saved on purpose, for the purpose of proclaiming His excellencies. And we do that right at least two ways. We are living a changed life, and the praise of His greatness is on our lips. Inviting others to taste and see of the same heavenly bread we have had at the mercy of feet of Christ. That's why God saved you. So friend, what is the purpose of your life? What have you been living for? When you have a free moment and you're scheming about, what do I want to do this week? What are my plans for the future? What is my career path? And all of these things. Are those plans in line with this purpose that he's given you? Will those plans satisfy like this Savior will? Will those plans and those things you dream of, will they last for an eternity like that song to Christ will? What today is keeping you from telling your neighbor, telling your coworker, telling your child, your grandfather about how excellent your God is and what he's done for you, making you part of the people of God? What today is keeping you from obeying his commands given for your good? Well, whatever reasons or excuses we throw up, can any of them be better than having closer fellowship with him? And with that said, we're preparing to come take this table. So I'm going to ask the men who have been designated to come forward to distribute the elements. And they're going to hand out as we celebrate this table that represents the one place and one reason we can have fellowship with God because it's through the cross of Christ alone. And if that's your faith, that is, you have trusted in Christ to be your Savior and your Lord, and that's a public faith that other people know about, not some secret one, then join us in partaking of this fellowship. But if you do not yet believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then let the cup pass and do not partake of it as you'd be drinking judgment unto yourself based on the warnings of 1 Corinthians 11. As the men grab the trays, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your abundant mercy. Forgive us for the ways that we've forgotten your many good works to us, most of all of this salvation. May we be those that confess it now that we have not delivered as your people as we ought, and yet we also confess that you're a greater Savior than we could ever imagine. Thank you for the work of Christ.
Give assurance of this that you are working in our behalf to your people, we pray. Amen.